0: Welcome to episode 85 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. James, I've seen you socially a couple times since the last time we recorded. Which
1: doesn't happen normally. No. <laughs>
0: what did we do? We went to that screening of In Fabric where that lady shushed us for laughing. And also, I dragged you to a drag show.
1: Which was amazing. I had such a good time. And you
0: were um, accosted by one of the drag queens who lip-synced a scene from a movie that you referenced on the show. Like Which is so,
1: <laughs> so weird. Yeah, from Boomerang.
0: Yeah, that Eddie Murphy movie.
1: Yeah, that was a very weird set of coincidences. <laughs> it was wonderful. But yeah, I, I felt oddly in- intimidated, um, <laughs> but I enjoyed myself.
0: It was validating too to hear that that movie like has a real world like impact out there because it's not one I hear about very often. I don't even know if I knew it existed before you referenced it. So
1: yeah, and I I think um the part that she was referencing was Grace Jones's amazing. Uh, which, she's amazing in <laughs> yeah. Boomerang, so I definitely knew the scene she was referencing when she did her routine.
0: Well, what have you been watching movie wise since then?
1: I actually made it out to the theaters. Pretty recently, I saw Ma. I loved it. I really liked it a lot. Our whole last episode, me and Brittany was about that movie. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm guessing Brittany liked it, too. Oh, yeah. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I like when prestigious actors kind of take on these B-level roles and just kind of like give it the perfect amount. It it was like a pitch-perfect performance from Octavia Spencer.
0: And directed by the guy who did the help with her as well. Uh, which is insane because it's a completely different tonal shift for him.
1: Wait, it's by the same same guy that did the Help. Yes, really,
0: Tate Taylor. Yeah,
1: what? what a strange man. That's a weird <laughs> combo, but yeah, that movie was a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoyed it. We compared it to um, Psycho Biddies, so like old like Betty
0: Davis and um, Joan Crawford movies where they go crazy and like kill people with axes and stuff. Even yeah. though. Octavia Spencer's a little younger than them uh, when she made this. She's, like, not even 50 years
1: old yet. It felt like a part of that, like, whatever happened to Baby Jane tradition. Well, and I thought it was kind of a fresh take on that as, like, someone who, in high school, I think, like, actually my mom was considered the kind of cool mom that would let you, like, have parties at her house and stuff, and to see that, like, turned into this, like, horror thing was, I don't know, that made me giddy because I feel like that's... A topic that's very ripe for a horror movie and it, it was interesting too it's like this a more like psychological slow burn and then the last maybe 30 minutes is just outright like <laughs> insanity
0: and even on both sides of that like there's parts where she's partying and then on like the flip of a switch is just like zoning out and like looking murderous right or, like muttering the lyrics to like pop songs under her breath while like scrapbooking and I don't know, that switch is like breakneck speed. And then later, when she's actually killing people, it's the same thing. Like she kills them with this like crazy look in her face. And then a second later is like dancing and like having fun. I yeah, it's like once impressive. that
1: flip, once the switch is flipped, there's she's full on psycho mode. Yeah. And once she decides to start killing people, she kills everybody <laughs> she possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, I had a I had a lot of fun. It was fun seeing it in the theaters. Like I could tell everybody was enjoying it too. Oh yeah, a lot of vocal reactions. So yeah, that that was really good. Um, what else did I watch? Uh, this morning I watched Border. I think it came out last year. I just watched that an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it, I I remember seeing the trailer. I was like, this is a very strange movie. I guess it's like thought it was just going to be a troll love story and the actual movie is like way darker and weirder than somber I, and yeah and somber and it does have is it norwegian it's swedish swedish yeah oh, okay well
0: it was actually sweden's submission to the oscars for best foreign language film and obviously did not get it nominated did not, did not, it's too no. weird for that uh but they did nominate for best um, makeup and hair which i thought was pretty cool
1: yeah actually we had i had to google like it started, I was like, wait, I just want to make sure these people aren't actually, they're not taking like deformed people and exploiting them. And I was like, okay, these are normal people with prosthetics on.
0: They have a little bit of that uh, Geico caveman look. does <laughs> yeah. like old commercials. Well,
1: it's like the the large brow. Yeah. But man, it was like, a yeah, a very somber, strange journey. And it, the story went in some very dark places that I was not anticipating.
0: And has some of the most exciting and some of those vile sex scenes I've ever seen in my life.
1: That is that is one of the weirdest sex scenes I've probably ever seen. The one
0: honestly. you're talking about, I loved, but there's other sex in the movie that's like really hard to
1: like listen to. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I don't want to give you, too much away. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about.
0: I mean, we are going to talk about this on an episode, you, me, and Brittany coming up. So we're going to get into it more in depth. But yeah, the movie goes some really fucked up places.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did enjoy it. I just was kind of taken aback at how strange it was. I guess the last thing I'll just briefly mention is I have been getting more into this director mostly from like, I guess the seventies and early eighties, Larry Cohen. Yeah. But especially this movie bone I saw recently, which is kind of a social commentary, but it's wickedly funny and it's like, it, it would not get made today. It's way too controversial, but it basically revolves around this Beverly Hills couple. Um, the husband is like a used car salesman. He's a slime ball and a black man shows up at their house and they assume he's there to like clean the pool, but he actually kidnaps them and um, tells the husband he has to go and like withdraw all this money or he's going to rape his wife. Jesus. But then like him and the wife, their relationship changes as they're waiting in the house for him to like go get the money. But then he goes on these series of misadventures and it's like kind of this farcical, like it sounds really dark and messed up and the premise is, but the actual movie is like hilarious. It's very funny and it, it shouldn't be. It sounds, I don't know. It just sounds, it's a dangerous sort of movie that I don't think a get made now, but I'm curious what a modern audience would, think of this movie
0: that might be why it's like not one of the ones that gets mentioned as often as like it's alive or God told me to or cue the winged serpent you know yeah Larry came Larry Cohen just died earlier this year mm-hmm. and I did not hear anyone like go to bat for bone on this memorials I've never even heard of that one
1: yeah I would um, maybe in a future episode uh, since he did pass away this year it might be good to revisit some of his major works and I would include this in there I think it's a, a great movie
0: I mean, you're saying revisit. I don't know that I've seen enough of his movies at all. I know that later in life he penned a lot of like major studio stuff, like phone booth and like cellular. He did, yeah, but I don't know that I've seen a lot of his like classic schlock stuff. Even though that's like exactly the kind of movies I usually watch.
1: I, I think you would love his style. It's like B movie at its core, but like the dialogue is very clever. For and and then also like in *Cue the Winged Serpent*. He's got some really interesting characters that are actually, like, very fleshed out that you wouldn't expect f- for that kind of movie. And also, he does a lot with, like, a very small budget, and he does some really experimental stuff as far as the shots he chooses and jump cuts and that sort of thing. I mean, that's why
0: we love that genre stuff is that they have more play with, like, taking very risks playful. on that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: But, yeah, I really am digging his older catalog. And yeah, I think we should kind of go back and visit for the first time or yeah. revisit some stuff. That sounds um, great. But anyway, so that's kind of what I've been up to. What about you?
0: Well, speaking of stuff, we're going to talk in depth more later. Um, I finally got a Blu-ray in the mail that I pre-ordered assuming it would be one of my favorite movies I've seen all year. And it was, and I want to build a whole episode around it. Hmm. Uh, it's called knife and heart. Okay. Uh, it's a Jollo throwback set on a porn shoot in Paris in the late 70s. Oh, man. And it's very cheeky and funny, but also, like, really melodramatic. And basically this woman is, like, filming a gay porn with, like, a bunch of, like, dudes boning. And, you know, it's shot in a Jalo style. There's a lot of, like, weird lighting and supernatural mystique. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this masked killer who keeps killing her, like, crew. And she starts filming the a new porn that recreates the murders that are happening on set where she's the killer in the story. Whoa. It's fucking weird. (laughs) And I just found it so fun and playful and beautiful. And I'm watching it. I'm like, man, this is reminding me a lot of the wild boys, which Mm -hmm. I, you know, forced everyone to watch last year. And I looked it up after and the director of the wild boys. His only acting credit is as the cinematographer in knife and heart. And both movies are in the same production company. It's called like Altered Innocence. Okay. Uh, So the guy is like in the movie filming this like fake porn and he is the director of the Wild Boys. So it's like some weird French community where they're making this like very lush, reminds me a lot of James Bidgood photography and a lot of like appreciation for like old fashioned beefcake sexuality, but also just filtered through you know, very campy horror. Yeah. You have me at like
1: Gallo, melodramatic and gay porn. Oh, it's set. great. That yeah. sounds like a recipe for fun.
0: And to be honest, I feel like this summer has been like kind of depressing with like new releases. I haven't seen a lot that I've loved, loved outside like the overlook festival recently. Yeah. And so it was just really exciting to see that. And also um I saw this other movie, uh, the last black man in San Francisco that mm-hmm. a 24 is releasing soon. Um, it hasn't opened wide yet to New Orleans, but uh, I saw a sneak preview screening of that, and that also made like you know my top ten of the year so far. Uh, so that one and Knife and Heart back to back were like really exciting.
1: So wait, what's the premise of Last Black Man in San Francisco?
0: It's about gentrification. It's this guy who lives in Oakland, not by choice. Uh, his family home, where he grew up in San Francisco, has been like priced out of you mm-hmm. know a reasonable range for anybody living there. Yeah. And he, you know, travels by skateboard and bus back to the house every day from his shithole apartment in Oakland, and like fixes it up. Like this, like wealthy millionaire white couple, liberal, like NPR people, are like living in the house, and he's on the side on a ladder painting the window panes to make sure the paint's fresh. And they're like, "Get the fuck out of here!" And they're like throwing croissants at him, <laughs> and like, like stop messing with my house. They get foreclosed on because rent. And, like, property taxes and other issues are just, like, it's impossible to live there unless you have, like, millions and millions of dollars. Right. Uh, So he just starts squatting in the house and pretending that he lives in it anyway. And what I love about this movie, it's a debut feature, so it has that sort of, like, shaggy feel where the tone's kind of, like, all over the place. And there's all these weird camera tricks that just, like, hurl GoPros through the air and, like, zoom in in slow motion and do those, like, weird frame Mm -hmm. rate choices. It's just a bizarrely shot film. And the more they wait around to get evicted in this house and there's, like, no plot, the biggest plot is, like, this friendship that continues to develop between him and his best buddy who um, is a stage playwright. Like, he writes plays that never get made. And the more they wait around, the more the movie feels like a play. It feels like Waiting for Godot or No Exit or Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's, like, this existential, surreal play about gentrification and how they are, like, ghosts living in this, like, city where they're not invited anymore and at any Dang. time they'll be evicted uh and who knows when uh it's it's just really fun it sounds good yeah. yeah it'll probably be in new orleans in the next week or so so i would okay. recommend seeing them on the big screen just because there hasn't been a lot of exciting stuff lately
1: yeah i saw i was looking at some you know best movies of 2019 so far because we're about halfway yeah th- through the year and i've seen a lot the stuff on those lists and none of it really thrills me
0: i mean i could rattle off some favorites i think there's been some great movies this year yeah in fabric which we saw together was great that would be in my top
1: five probably
0: the two i just mentioned i think are really good i really loved climax from gaspar Noé.
1: saw that re- yeah we talked about that a little bit off before oh, yeah i yeah, loved
0: it i really liked us even though you didn't like it thought that was fantastic um there's been some interesting movies yeah I liked High Life more than you did, <laughs> so that's probably yeah. part of it too. Uh,
1: I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being extra judgy this year. I feel
0: it though. Like I've been to the theater a few times recently and expected to have a good time and just been kind of like, oh, that was fine or not even fine. Something was not good. Um, yeah, <laughs> we don't tend to talk about movies we flat out didn't like on the show that often. No, because so there's no point. What's really, the point? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I I was definitely getting that like summer bummer feel where like every week was some Disney release I didn't want to see. It's like Aladdin or Toy Story 4 or what have you. And it was nice to see two movies in the same week that were like really great.
1: Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check those out.
0: Yeah, if Last Black Man in San Francisco opens in like Broad or at Elmwood, I definitely recommend going out to see that when that opens. New Orleans Film Society membership is what got me a preview screening for that. Cool. And they do those um, Sunday screenings at the Pretender that are free at like 10 a.m., and I see some good classic movies in the meantime. They play Hitchcock all the time. And we saw a Busby Berkeley musical there recently. Hmm. So you can still see good movies on the big screen, even if they're not new. Uh, <laughs> well, today we're going to be talking about some older movies, too, that we also have mixed um, opinions on
1: as well. I, I mean, you might have mixed opinions. I I loved it. I'm the one that recommended this Yeah, episode.
0: Last time you and I talked, you mentioned that you were watching a lot of films from Adrian Lin. Mm -hmm. And he is most well-known for, I would say, his erotic melodramas from the 80s and 90s. And that's what we're talking about today. Yep. And all that's coming up to you right right now. now. Suppose I were to offer you $1 million for one night with your wife. I'd assume you're kidding.
1: Let's pretend I'm not. What would you say? He'd tell you to go to hell. I didn't hear him. i tell
0: you to go to hell. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where host of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And it was James's turn to pick the topic this time. Like I said, it was Adrian Lynn's erotic melodramas. What stood out to you as like the best of the erotic melodramas or like the pinnacle of what he was doing with those?
1: I honestly, I am a fan of all of his stuff. I think maybe we'll start with Indecent Proposal and kind of work our way back That's one of the later ones, yeah. I mean, it was... Was it his... No, Fatal Attraction would probably be his most successful. But I I remember when Indecent Proposal came out, it was a pretty big hit. Like, it made a lot of money, and it was definitely water cooler. I wrote this down just because
0: it's insane, but it made $270 million on a $38 million budget. Which, for an adult drama about, like, feelings, in 2019, that would not happen at all. Right. There's just, like, no way. (laughs) It was a different time, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll definitely get into this with his other movies, but this one in particular kind of has, I think, a hook that a lot of his best work has, where it's, "What would you do if right. blank?"
0: He's and, like the Larry Cohen of uh, <laughs> of like dramas because <laughs> it's like a very specific um, premise, you know.
1: When I think too, it he's able to like capture the zeitgeist in a certain way because with a movie like this where uh, if you don't know the premise, it's pretty straightforward. It's a couple that they're in love, but they've fallen on hard times during the recession. They decide to go to the casino to try to like make a certain amount of money so they can keep their house. It's Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson. And anyway, they, they get there and they lose all their money. They're about to lose their home. And then Robert Redford, who plays this like kind of, sleazy ultra rich billionaire. He's in Donald Trump drag. Like he has
0: like the thin blonde hair and the power, the red power tie. I
1: think that is what they were. That was the inspiration for his character. Uh, And he basically, um, he's smitten by Demi Moore and he proposes that he'll give them a million dollars. If he can spend one night with his wife and the movie is basically their decision and the fallout from their decision and then kind of come to grips with that decision, trying to move forward in their relationship. So it has this kind of melodrama that's very central to the story. But again, I feel like the reason it was so successful is that water cooler aspect of, cause after the movie, everyone's talking about like, well, what would you have done in this situation? And to become a part of the conversation, the only way to do that is to actually go see the movie. So it perpetuates itself. Like, when everyone else is talking about it, you want to be in on the conversation. And I feel like that's central to this movie, also to Fatal Attraction, to some of his other films. He has that hook of, like, what would you do? Be part of the conversation.
0: Well, that that language you're using is very funny to me because the movies come back into, like, cultural conversation recently because there's some show, I believe it was Renee Zellweger in it, called What If on Netflix. And I think it starts with the same premise. Like, someone offers them a million dollars to sleep with their wife or something. Maybe it's reversed gender-wise. Well, I, or saw,
1: I saw the little blurb when I was scrolling through Netflix and it made it seem like it was more about their soul, like giving up <laughs> the soul. Of, like, you literally, it's like the
0: Rosemary's Baby, like, you know, um, amplification yeah, of the premise. Yeah, I think they
1: took it to like a kind of a supernatural. That's amazing. Which is interesting. <laughs> I, and the
0: movie has that like soapy yes. thing to it. Like the, what if I offered you a million dollars to sleep with your wife? premise of this like that is a starting point and I think that's like a first act problem. Yeah. And then the rest of the movie is just them dealing with the fallout of that in this very soapy like melodramatic way. Yes. And you said you liked that about his movies that they're very like mellow They're sincere in their melodrama.
1: Yeah. And I think doing some research for this episode found out that he was a television commercial. He did commercials early in his career and this movie especially feels like a perfume commercial. It, the way it's shot, there's a scene at the like very end where it's kind of the culmination of the movie and they're in the rain and it, there's like dew in the air and just it looks like something straight out of a like L'Oreal commercial or something.
0: Also like the biggest cliche in like commercial production is that sex sells and you know obviously he has a pretty big preoccupation with sex in these films. A lot of them are based on the sex appeal and that's what gets people to the theater. Um, This one, I think the least. So like, I think the sex is mostly off screen.
1: Yeah. I, I, and I think that's, he gets called out for being a kind of an exploitative director when it comes to women. And in this one, I, he purposely chooses not to show the sex scene, which for this story, I think is a brilliant decision because then you're kind of left in the dark in the same way Woody Harrelson's character is like, I don't know what happened. Was the sex good? Was it bad? Like, what did y'all do? How'd the night go? And you don't know. and You're never going to know. And so that plays into the story in a pretty clever way, I think.
0: I will say I did find almost every, well, yeah, I will say every movie we talked about misogynist, like every movie is bad for women. <laughs> But you, I will say, you think so? I think so, and we can get into that we're gonna at get length. Into it. But I will say upfront to his credit, he works with a lot of female co-writers. Um, this movie was written by, or at least partially written by, Amy Holden Jones, mm-hmm. who directed the first Slumber Party Massacre movie, uh, and I love that series so much. So it's like just interesting to see her name attached to something pretty big like this. Uh, and a few of the later ones, not Fatal Attraction, but a few of the later ones, otherwise, were also written or co-written by women. So there is like sort of a sexual fantasy to some of this where you have to, I think, separate yourself from real world morality. I think the sympathies in this movie are really fucked up and the way it's portrayed is fucked up. But if it's written by women as a sexual fantasy, it makes sense the way it's done here. Like it's very situational and not very like visually graphic in the way like a pornographic um, version of the story would be.
1: I mean, this to me felt like um, one of those cheesy romance kind of novels that like a lot of older housewives sort of eat up. I think it was
0: actually even made more palatable for women than the original novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, The novel version of this, Woody Harrelson's character is Jewish and the millionaire is a Arab Emirate who exploits him. So there's like this weird oh, ethnographical version like that they completely that. removed. Yeah, get rid of that. So thank God for that. And then also the way it's sort of like told in flashbacks and the way it's like very sentimental about their relationship and what they've been through. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that could be put to credit to like Amy Holden Jones's input as like adapting this for the screen from the novel where you would expect the novel would have started from that like sort of dreamy space where like it creates a situation where cheating is, you know, at least morally gray. Like it's not like she cheated on this guy because the richer guy was offering her stuff. It's more like she was stuck in this impossible situation between two men. Right but I think that's also where the misogyny comes from too. Once you start applying like real world morality to it.
1: Yeah. But see, I, I struggle with that and I struggle with that in all of his movies. And I think that's like kind of a big criticism that he gets throughout his filmography. And in this one, I, I kept going back and forth because she is empowered in a sense. Like it is her decision. It is her body. Is it though? She did. De- I mean, <laughs> she decides to do it. I mean, she's, There's a coercion of the monetary incentive, but I don't know if that's that much different than how, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, well, prostitutes, they have agency and they're deciding to do what they want with their body. And then other people say like, well, when you have the monetary incentive, they don't have full agency. So I kind of struggle like.
0: That's that's only Does, the first issue. Is she issue. empowered or not? The know? first issue is that this man who is better off than them—they are like so desperate. It's yeah, they are broke. They have no dollars. True. Um I think she's like taking back pennies and nickels from her for, tip <laughs> at the, the diner. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's really pathetic. So that's the first thing. There's like a financial exploitation to this. And I think that's what the movie has on its mind. Mm -hmm. There's a power imbalance in this millionaire coming in and doing this. That is one issue. And I could talk about that more, but I do want to open up the other thing, which is the way the exchange is discussed. It's a contractual event between men. There's a contract that's negotiated with Woody Harrelson's lawyer, and she is property in this transaction. Yeah. And the first time it's brought up, Robert Redford's like I fucking Demi Moore from across the casino uh, way before he finds out that they, these are like a, you know, yuppie couple that's mm-hmm. fallen on hard times. And he asks Woody Harrelson like, "Can I borrow your wife for luck?" And later when the, you know, proposition comes up, it's like the, the indecent proposal comes up. It's like, "What would you say if I offered you a million dollars to sleep with your
1: wife?" It's all about possession, like you own yeah. this property, can I borrow this property? Never does he evening. ask
0: her, like, what would you say if I offered you a million dollars for one night with you? It's to Woody Harrelson, and she is like a literal bargaining chip between him, between the two men. And I, my main problem with the movie is that's not a problem until it asks us to be sympathetic with these two scumbags. Both of them.
1: I don't know. I feel like throughout Adrian Lens films, the men don't get, like, a pass. The men are, like, scum and like... Pretty much every movie I've seen from him, like I think they both get a pass here. Do they? Yeah, like Woody Harrelson. I, I character. thought Woody Harrelson was like a huge asshole for like eighty percent of the. I didn't say. I like I understood why she would be pushed away from him. That very jealous like behavior that a lot of men exhibit. Like I didn't see him as getting a pass. Not in my eyes, at least.
0: I feel like we're supposed to empath or like see it through his eyes. Like he is the point of view character when she should have been. And we're like seeing like, why did you go through with this? Why did you follow through and leave me alone? Like we, we watch him alone more than we watch her with this new guy. Cause their relationship falls apart after the initial sex. And then we follow him and his emotions. And then later Robert Redford lets her go. And it's like shot is like an act of grace. It's like he gives her an out Instead of, like, making her make a choice between the two of them, he's, like, fake pretending that he's casting her aside and that he's done this thousands of times.
1: Because he has picked up on, like, that they're actually in love and she'll never love him right. the same way.
0: And that could almost work morally where it's, like, he is, you know, has such a fragile ego that he has to... um frame it that way even though he's lying but instead they frame it so that they both know what he's doing like they have this like moment of recognition right? and she knows that he's letting her go gracefully and we're supposed to kind of feel bad for him for being alone like this poor little rich boy with all his money and no friendship and I just don't feel bad for him or Woody Harrelson at all because they you know bargain with women as like property and it's gross
1: Yeah, I don't know I can't really argue with that it's a sleazy premise. Of course, yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Well, okay. Let's, because I'm sure some of this stuff will come up. It's going to yeah. come up a lot. Yeah. But putting that aside, just purely as like, I guess, the technical aspect, like none of the, these issues, just as a film, yeah. what did you think?
0: Um, I think it drags really hard and it does not need to be as nearly as long as it is, which I could say about every single Adrian Lynn film we're gonna talk about today. They're all a full two hours and once the trigger is pulled on the like gun here, like once she has sex with Robert Redford, there's a lot of wallowing and like gazing out of windows and like alone time that but see, I does I not hold my attention. That's
1: part of that's part of melodrama is yeah. those, those kind of scenes of just characters looking longingly out of windows. I mean, that's part of the genre and it is tedious. I will agree with you in that, especially the one we'll talk about next fatal attraction. I feel like the first two thirds of that movie is like a perfect thriller. And then it just kind of goes off the rails. I think this one too, I think the first 45 minutes or so is super strong. And then, yeah, it kind of drags out as yeah. it gets to its climax. I, I, I could, yeah, I think that's a valid criticism.
0: I don't want to be entirely negative either. Like, I didn't really enthusiastically enjoy any of these movies. <laughs> um, especially this one, I think, was my least favorite. But I do think that those, like, long stretches, those, like, melodramatic, like, reflections on things that we've done. Right. And things we could have done better. They do leave a lot of room for weird shit to happen. One of my favorite things, and this actually really made me want to watch Jacob's Ladder, which Mm -hmm. we almost got to for this episode. We didn't quite fit the theme. But um, Woody Harrelson walks through Vegas. After Demi Moore's already left and gone to this yacht, right? I
1: know exactly. And it's it's hell.
0: Like, Vegas is so overwhelming on the sensory level. There's lights and sounds and fire everywhere.
1: It's a nightmare.
0: And he's sort of given up at a certain point. Like, he can't find her, and he's, like, sort of given up, and he... Trudges across this room where all these like gross gamblers are watching horse races. Yeah. On all these TV screens, and then the horse races on the screens turn into his mental image of her and Robert Redford having sex, which yep. is the most of that sex that we see, and it's fucking weird. It's like this eerie horror film intrusion into this movie,
1: and he does that like that's, that's a great th- a thing he does. He just slips in because he is like a commercial filmmaker, but. I appreciate that he slips in very weird, subversive and some of the shots he chooses and other choices are very strange. And yeah, that was like one of my favorite scenes from this whole movie. And speaking of
0: hallucinations, there's also um, this weird obsession with hippos that um,
1: for some, re- yeah, pops
0: up in the second half of the film. Um, Woody Harrelson's playing with his dog cause he's alone in his house wallowing. Uh, <laughs> And he sort of fake plays that he's attacking the dog with his hippo toy. And we see from the dog's point of view, the hippo plushie and the dog's hallucination of a hippo in the wildlife for no discernible reason. And then almost two or three scenes later, Woody Harrelson pops in at an auction to win his wife back from this uh, millionaire. Right. And they're auctioning off hippos. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck does any of that mean? And what does it have to do with like the and themes he, like, of the film?
1: Puts, I just, I don't know. It's a strange little aside. A little I like artistic that. choice.
0: Yeah, that's weird. I like that.
1: What do you think about um, Woody Harrelson's architecture lesson? That, that's another like little odd choice. I really. It's just so long. He like like a big arc for his character. Is he rediscovers his love of architecture? There's a long scene where he's giving a lecture and I don't know, just little, little things like that. I I appreciate about Adrian Lynn,
0: which I guess if you film that much stuff and you have like that much time to like allow these characters to hang around, there's room for that. But like, I don't know if I necessarily wanted the movie to be as long as it was. Well,
1: and another thing I was reading is that he was notorious for like working his actors, like to the bone, like basically like while you're on set, we're going to film as much as possible so he would do a lot of takes and just try a bunch of stuff out and just like constantly shooting and so i that's the vibe i get from some of these longer passages where he's like he has a ton of footage and he's trying to like make it work or like fit it in
0: yeah i, I listened to a recent episode of switchblade sisters uh and they were talking about this movie unfaithful he did
1: yeah they, have you seen that one with Diane seen Keaton? That. Diane Lane. Oh, Diane Lane. Sorry. Uh, and yeah,
0: she didn't work for almost two years after that filming because he would shoot these like passionate sex scenes for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. And like, she was just like, I, I broke, like I couldn't work. I was physically and emotionally tired for two years.
1: Then that, that, that doesn't actually, sound cool. <laughs> it sounds well, like so an asshole. <laughs> well, so we'll get into that because that's an interesting aspect. So his relationship with his female actors in the beginning of his career with Kim Bassinger in nine and a half weeks, there was all this stuff written about how kind of the same thing with Diane Lane. She just was pushed to her brink and he was like telling Mickey Rourke to like basically like be mean to her and like manipulating his actors to like get a better performance. Which
0: when you're filming sex scenes is a form of sexual assault. Fucked really up. Yeah.
1: So he kind of got that reputation. But then like Glenn Close said like he was a joy to work with. Like I know issues he brought out. So he's kind of had conflicting, I, I think, yeah, some female actresses like they just pushed him too far across the line and others swear he's like a, a warm, kind person. So it's hard to like get a sense of what is this dude really like? Like, I don't know.
0: And I will say across these films, I think the female collaborators he has are like what I find most interesting about the movies and maybe that's why this one is probably my least favorite that we're talking about today because like, okay, Amy Holden-Jones fixing some problems with the novel and like her screen adaptation of it, that's probably a good thing and probably made me enjoy the film more but also Demi Moore is not really on the screen as much as I want her to be. A lot of this movie is about Woody Harrelson's reaction to this situation.
1: I read a interview with him where he says like she was basically hard to work with. Like that's when she was kind of at her peak of being like a super star. And I mean, this is his side, but according to him, like it was just difficult. He had to go through her manager and through bodyguards to even speak with her. And she kind of was like a diva, I guess on set. And, And she didn't agree with where the character should go. And they were just butting heads. And so I wonder if that has something to do with why she's not as prominent in the picture as I feel like she should be.
0: And I wonder if he wanted to squeeze in more explicit sex. I just couldn't get it out of her. Like, because that seems like his usual mode.
1: Yeah, I I think that was a direct choice not to have any explicit sex, at least with her and Robert Redford. Right. Because it fits with the story, but... The one glimpse we do have of her having sex, I do think fits in with
0: other movies on this docket. Yeah. Is that she is furious at Woody Harrelson Harrelson for not picking up his laundry and throws socks at his head and is like borderline physically abusive like kind of slapping him physically and then they fuck on the floor and then later
1: I thought it was made pretty clear it was like a bit though
0: it was hard to tell and then later when um, she comes back from this tryst on the yacht they are initially kind of angry at each other when they first like lock eyes And then she and Woody Harrelson have sex. So they're kind of like turned on by this, you know, impossible situation they've been put in. It's only later when he starts asking her questions, like, did you enjoy it? And is like trying to push her to say that she did, did or did not enjoy it, which I don't know what he wants. Like, does he want her to say, no, I hated it? I I had terrible sex and it was awful.
1: Well, and that's the thing with the premise of the, like, there's no good way that that could go. Right. Right. you still had sex with someone else and okay, the sex was terrible. Well, what does it matter if the sex was good or not? And the
0: problems in the relationship is that they don't talk about it. And like communication has just been cut off. She's like, we'll never mention this again. And that is their downfall.
1: Yeah. That's not a good way to not mentioning. It leads
0: him to dwell on it. Like they should process it through therapy really uh, together. But instead um, we have him like boiling over and just like, did you enjoy it? And it's like, he becomes physically abusive the way that that like laundry bit was. True. So I don't know. Those moments of sex are interesting and they're messy and weird and like hard to read, which I think feeds into, you know, how he always shoots sex. Adrian Lynn always shoots sex in this like really weird sloppy way. Why is it that all the interesting guys are always married? Well, maybe that's why you find them interesting, the fact you can't have them. Well, speaking of sloppy sexuality and um, really uh, specific premises, uh, I guess we should get into the next Adrian Lynn film, uh, which you picked to watch, which was 1987's Fatal Attraction. Yes. What What happens in that movie?
1: Oh, we all know. I mean, we all know what happens in that movie. A guy... Played by Michael Douglas. He's got a happy family, a wonderful... The child actor is so cute in this movie plays his daughter? Yeah. Right? I don't know why I'd even... Her name's
0: Ellen, but she does have sort of like a, you know, tomboyish uh, appearance.
1: Well, anyway, he's got the like perfect life and he decides while well, his family's out of town for the weekend, he's going to have an affair with this really kind of fierce, powerful career woman played by Glenn Close and... Initially, they kind of set boundaries like, okay, this is like a one-time deal. We're going to have fun, and we're adults. We can move on, but she does not go with that, and she becomes very manipulative, very possessive, starts stalking him, starts calling constantly, and it the movie is basically an escalation of her obsession with him, and it, then it turns into a straight-up horror movie right. at the end
0: and this is kind of like a genre of Michael Douglas films. Like he has this other movie disclosure where like he sleeps with a woman who's more powerful than him at the office. And she like makes his life a living hell.
1: Yeah. Basic instinct. He's in that as well. I get these two titles mixed up all the time. There's something about Michael Douglas. He's really good at playing this like kind of smarmy asshole that you might not like, like him, but he is the protagonist and you still like, Kind of empathize with him. I don't, he has this quality about him where he's likable but also a complete asshole. And why is he so sexualized in all these films? I think he was the sex icon. It's very
0: odd. And this is a man who casually said in an interview that he might have gotten throat cancer from eating out his wife too often, uh, which is. hilarious (laughs) (laughs) hilarious <laughs> <laughs> he was
1: joking right that,
0: i don't think uh, he was because really? yeah i think you can get throat cancer from like hpv uh, uh and he was just was sort of he
1: like married to captain zeta jones yeah oh what a so he, what?
0: He, he uh you know basically like bought himself a younger wife because he's a rich hollywood man and they do that all the time i mean and come he, on
1: he's got some charisma and then he orally charisma?
0: serviced her so often that he got throat cancer which
1: it's a theory <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Glenn close as well like She also, her highest recognized role besides this maybe is like Dangerous Liaisons. Right. uh, Where she also plays like a highly sexualized character. And these are two people that I think are really good actors, but not necessarily the first people you would think of as like heartthrob, like sex symbols.
1: Well, especially Glenn Close. I don't think anyone would consider her a sex icon. Like, even if she might have played some of these roles, I thought her performance... Was like really really interesting in that like, she's obviously very sexual in this movie, but she's not like one of these bombshell starlets. Like she has like kind of a rougher look that I think works for this particular performance. But I I think she is an interesting choice cast wise. I think Michael Douglas is just. He's just there. He's there. He's, he's, he's doing the what wall he does. street asshole. Like he's a yeah. rich
0: guy who thinks he can get whatever he wants. And nothing, no, and that no, he's perfect problem. for that, right. that
1: role. But she's an interesting choice. And I, and honestly, like she looks kind of scary, you know, like throughout this film, like at one point she's full Corella Deville, which right. he would eventually play. But yeah, I think an interesting casting choice for her.
0: Like I was saying earlier, his, or Adrian Lynn's like, biggest pleasures to me are like what he brings with his like female collaborators. And there are no women co-writers in this film, but I do think Glenn Close herself like elevates the material in this like really interesting way.
1: Yeah. And I think she, from what I've been reading, like she took this role very seriously. She loved this character. Yeah. And she did a lot of like research and went to psychiatric hospitals. And I think what's, kind of a shame about the movie is she ultimately was disappointed in how it turned out because ultimately she is seen as like a crazy psycho killer. Right. Instead of a mentally damaged person that has like a psychological disorder, whether it be borderline personality disorder or depression or whatever. And they kind of explore that in the movie. But like I was saying earlier, it's a shame that they dropped that in the third act and go straight for the
0: so so much so that they redid the ending of the film.
1: Well, so the original ending was supposed to be that she commits suicide and frames him right for it. But then I guess they did it with test audiences. And American audiences were craving a more traditional,
0: they wanted to see her punished and they uh, gave her like a full Norman Bates kind of like stabbing in the shower. Death. Like she goes to kill Michael Douglas's wife in their bathroom, and then she gets shot in, I believe, in the head or the heart. I can't remember. Yeah, and
1: Close said in an interview, like, there's a part in that scene where she's like stabbing herself. And so that was her still trying to like reinforce that this character is like self destructive. So she's trying to add layers of nuance to this character, but I think ultimately they went with the more sensational more mainstream Hollywood ending. And that's what I was saying before that. I feel like the first two thirds of this movie really are thrilling, like a top notch thriller. And then it turns into kind of just a by the numbers horror stalker flake. And that's what is kind of disappointing about it to me. It's at least more interesting
0: than indecent proposal to me because that that's the genre I would more often watch. Maybe. Right. I will say it's still hard morally to figure out what the movie's trying to say. When Michael Douglas cuts off the relationship, he's like, "We had our weekend. It's over." Mm-hmm. He is an asshole. He tells her like, "Be reasonable. You knew the rules, even though they did not discuss what they were doing." He just sort of believed he could. You waltz don't think in. it was
1: kind of implied in their conversation yes. over dinner? That's what
0: he is saying. But that doesn't necessarily mean to her that it was implied. They didn't negotiate, you know, they didn't discuss before they had sex, what the sex meant, what activities they were going to do and what was off.
1: One also wasn't a one off thing like like a whole weekend. Yeah. A whole weekend of like explicit sex.
0: It wasn't a cold release of like lust either. It was like a very um, it was passionate. passionate. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that's what I like about Adrian Lynn his sex scenes are fucking weird. And I almost want to say inhuman. Like no one acts like this. There's a scene where they're fucking on the sink and they just start rubbing cold sink water on each other's faces while they're doing it. And there's another scene where he like lifts her up and is like waddling with his pants around his legs. People do not fuck like this. (laughs) This is not human behavior.
1: Well, and to your point, I also think like the blocking, for instance, in the scene in the elevator, there's a lot the of the world's slowest elevator where yeah, she blows Yeah, the slowest him. and the overhead shots and it's done in a very strange way and that's kind of what we were talking about with Indecent Proposal adding in these little flourishes of weirdness.
0: And there are others in the film and I think what's interesting is that this is not recognizable human sexuality at all, but there is sort of like an illogical aspect to lust and to like breaking marital rules and things like that. It, it's against logic and humanity and societal like norms sort of slip away in those moments. I don't think he nails what he's doing, but I do like that. He breaks down these like barriers of like what, how a human being acts.
1: I read something where he, they're asking him about sex scenes and he said he always found that like sex scenes in bed were boring. Yeah. So he likes to stage sex scenes on the sink, on the kitchen table counter on in the elevator and
0: there's a way to fuck on a sink and have it be undignified but not have people <laughs> reaching behind them while they're in the middle of like ecstasy and grabbing like a little palm full of sink water and then rubbing it on their partner's face while they're like going <laughs> at it it doesn't make any sense and it's so weird oh. and i find that stuff fascinating just because it's like so inhuman i think that maybe that's what was missing from a decent proposal for me was like just the weird sex Because these other two movies that we're talking about have like really weird, uncomfortable. Well, especially
1: nine and a half weeks. Yeah,
0: very weird sex. But okay, so after this like sexual tryst, they both react in two horrible ways. He is very callous and is like, "Well, this is over, and we had agreed, like you said, implied." that it would be over now and we're done. Right. And she's like, you can't just throw people away like this. You use them. It's wrong. Like she has a point. Like he is a spoiled rich toddler boy who thinks he can fuck a secretary or I don't, I don't remember what her position at the job is
1: in the same company. I believe he's above her in the company. Yeah.
0: So he's like fucking an inferior person in the like chain of command at, at the office. There's a power imbalance there and just leaving her. And While he is off living in this, like, fulfilled married life with a child where they have, like, rabbits on a farm and, like, this, like, cottage house. She is so bored and alone and sad and just flipping a a lamp on and off and staring at the wall with nothing to do. Yeah. Obsessing over, like, what happened And listening
1: to Madam Butterfly. Yes.
0: So that is bad on him. But the movie more, I think, like you were saying earlier, demonizes her. Because as soon as he says this is over, she slits her wrist and is like, "I'm going to die today because I cannot live without you." I mean, that's starting at eleven. Uh, she like, yeah, she deals with everything at this like operatic height uh, and basically systematically ruins his life and like threatens his wife and daughter for the rest of the film because of it.
1: But see again, like up until a certain point, it feels like a, a very real exploration of like severe bipolar or manic depressive or it's never quite clear exactly what she but she has some psychological like she needs help and the like suicide attempt is very manipulative but that's not outside of the realm of what someone with that disorder would do
0: yeah but i think the film
1: but at some point it it shifts Pain, sympathies. It shifts. Yeah. And she
0: crosses the line where she is the villain all of a sudden, and he's not. And that's the problem with Indecent Proposal too. Like we're supposed to sympathize. I think in that movie, we're supposed to sympathize with everybody. Yeah. Like we're supposed to sympathize yeah. with both the men and the woman. And in here, we're supposed to sympathize with the man more than the woman.
1: Well, I think, and in, also Indecent Proposal, you're supposed to sympathize with Robert Redford. Right. Like all, he's trying to create sympathy for all of his characters. In this one, it's a little more, Black and white of like Michael Douglas is protagonist, and at some point she shifts to like full on. In none
0: um, of these movies should we sympathize with the man. They're in a position of power and they're fucking with these people's lives for pleasure and they're just moving on, and it's not good. Like <laughs> they need to be punished for their transgressions, damn it. So, would you have preferred the original ending? Oh, for sure. I don't think it fixes the problems of the film, but. I, what, my, one of my favorite aspects of Fatal Attraction is that it brings in Madame Butterfly as this motif, and it takes, like, the soap opera aspect of the, the work, like, literally, where they have this sort of connection where they both love this particular opera for two different reasons in their past, and besides their, like, instant hormonal, like, I need to fuck you – Uh, connection that is their other connection is that they love the opera Mm -hmm. and there's this sort of like grand tragedy to her mental illness as you're sort of framing it and she framed it when she was conveying the character right that naturally plays out with this madam butterfly ending where she basically commits seppuku in the last scene and slits her own throat and that makes sense I think more with the story the movie's telling where I think by having her killed for like ruining this home life and like get that bitch response shows a very ugly impulse from the American viewing audience.
1: But see, yeah, exactly. I, I almost judged American mainstream audiences more than I do Adrian Ling because he wanted the original inning. I think the studio just, they said like, this is what audiences want. That's, that says something about American audiences,
0: We don't know what the contract was between, like, Final Cut, between the director and the studio here. Right. And that's a very big deal with contract negotiations with artists now. If you work for somebody like Warner Brothers, obviously royalties and, like, money, that matters a lot. But, like, Final Cut means a big deal with whether or not you're making art or product.
1: Yeah, that's like someone like, you know, David Lynch that has given up trying to do mainstream... And just once final cut, he wants to, like, make the movie he wants to make. Right. And I, I respect that. And he makes terrible movies now. <laughs> he hasn't made a movie in forever. <laughs> I, I rewatched Blue Velvet the other day, and it's fantastic. Oh, it's fantastic. a
0: classic. Yeah, I just... I, I'm not an Inland Empire or Twin oh, Peaks no, the Return. too weird. I'm not into that.
1: But I don't think Adrian Lin is that kind of director. He's, oh, he's, he's a, studio. a workman. He's a studio yeah. in the mainstream, big Hollywood. And so, yeah, I think he just went with what the studio wanted I think it's kind of a shame but you can watch the alternative ending on YouTube yeah and it actually does not end exactly how we I watched it because he actually it. does get away with it because he has a recording that she's made for him and he presents it to yeah. the police and it basically lets him off exonerates the anyway him. yeah really what would have been the best ending is the suicide he gets framed and he goes to jail yeah For some period of time.
0: That's why I borrowed the DVD from the library instead of like watching it on Netflix is because it included that extra ending. Uh But the difference I think is that the wife is the one that hears the exonerating evidence. She finds the cassette tape that like sets him free and she listens to it. And I don't think what's happening that scene is entirely him getting off the hook. I think she's also hearing the pain of this person who's been like used by her husband. Right. For like a to what him was a simple pleasure and like a brief tryst to her had a much bigger, like emotional import. Right. And I think the wife sort of recognizes that, that like, he's not a good guy in this situation.
1: Well, also to kind of delve into this. So the big conversation at, at the time when the, cause this was like a huge hit oh, yeah. as well. And also like, I think all these movies were big hits really <laughs> yeah. capture. Like again, like the zeitgeist of the era in the 80s, when you had upwardly mobile career women, a lot of people, feminists, criticize this movie because it seems that Adrian Lynn is sort of punishing the career woman that decides she doesn't want a family. She wants to focus on herself and career. and And at the end, Michael Douglas's wife ends up actually killing her. And it seems to symbolize, like, this is the correct dynamic, like
0: the housewife is superior. The
1: housewife is superior and she's going to kill this like career woman. And what's really interesting is there was a whole book. What is it called? Backlash. Okay. It's basically like a feminist critique about these fatal attraction being like the main one. And so that was written in the eighties. And I don't know if you caught this, but in indecent proposal, a receptionist at the nail sol- or she like filing her nails, like a secretary. She's reading a copy of Backlash, <laughs> and he, I read an interview where he even said like he did that to kind of poke fun at the feminists that have like constantly critiqued his movie. So it was like a but little. But
0: feminists have a point. Like no matter how this movie ends, the one of the main points of the film is like women be crazy. He has this logical yeah. approach to this affair, and is reasonable, rational just Woman disengaging emotionally deranged. And, yeah. And she's emotionally deranged. And as soon as it's over, she like starts slitting her wrist and we don't know enough about the wife or any other female characters. We have no other depictions of women's inner lives in the film besides Glenn close being at an 11, like yeah. madam butterfly level, emotional peak. And yeah, I, I think the movie has problems with women And the only saving grace there is that Glenn Close loved this character and, like, gave it some weird emotional heft uh, that maybe even, like, surpasses what the script afforded it. But, but
1: again, I think she was ultimately disappointed with how people perceived her character. So I don't think her intention for that character really came to fruition. So, yeah, it's, you know, problematic. As they say, and
0: I I don't have a problem with problematic art. Like most of my favorite art is problematic. <laughs> I just think it's worth discussing the moral like implications yeah. of what the writing is saying about well, the characters. Well,
1: the la- So the last thing I'll say about the moral implications and what really bothered me in regards to Michael Douglas's character is the aspect of her being pregnant. So when he finds out that Glenn Close is pregnant with his child. Is she though? Is she? Is she not? I don't know. I think she's making it up. I I thought she was, but we don't
0: we don't really know. And women are like that, you know. They'll just trap you with these pregnancies that you can't prove. Yeah, well, it's a fucked up movie, man.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not I'm not gonna get into personal right history. Yeah, but I've been in a situation. Okay, it's I remember that. I
0: remember that as you're saying it. Yes, it happens. Yeah.
1: So that's something I kind of connected with in the movie. Like, oh. Is she lying? Is she not? Like I don't know.
0: I'm rewatching Downton Abbey right now, and that's like a main um, plot line in the episode I watched today.
1: (laughs) It's funny how like he really does get like the best possible ending because if she is pregnant and then she gets killed at the end, he's killed two birds with one stone. He's got the crazy stalker woman got rid rid of, and the child she might be bearing is also rid. So all his problems are completely washed clean at the very end and that sort of bothered me like he didn't have any real repercussions for his shitty behavior
0: and i think um that is what makes him the protagonist and like i don't want to say the hero like he's not faultless but he is our point of view character more so than she is and i think that's why i like the last movie we're going to talk about i guess we should bring that in now yeah nine and a half weeks Uh, was Adrian Lin's like first big hit in these like erotic thrillers. Uh, It's from 1986. So it's a year before Fatal Attraction and like many years before um, Indecent Proposal. And I think in that one, it's pretty inarguable that Kim Basinger's character is the protagonist. Yes. She is the point of view character. Also, that one had more female input on the writing end. This woman, Susan Kirkinen, wrote the screenplay. Uh, there's a novel by Elizabeth McNeil that, like, started the whole thing. It was an right. adapter from a novel. And we see this, like, sort of, like, sinking into kink and bondage play and, like...
1: S&M, S&M. and m
0: materials through this woman's eyes. I think the movie's still fucked up on, like, a moral level. But I think this is my favorite one out of anything we watched because it leans into my favorite things that Adrian Lynn does. It has much more weird sex than any of the other. Oh, well,
1: yeah, that's what it's the movie is, is
0: sex. Yeah. There's also, you know, this female POV and I think undeniably the man is the villain in this one. And the way he goes about like introducing this woman into kink is a irresponsible power imbalance and the movie treats it as such. And then also there's just more weird touches the hippo stuff and the, uh, what was the other weird thing we pointed out? I don't know, the screens turning into like hypothetical uh, hallucinations mm-hmm. in A Proposal. In Fatal Attraction, there's the rabbit boiling scene is like really weirdly specific. And then there's also this shot of uh, Michael Douglas in the park from his dog's point of view, which is like a really weird aside. Yeah. In nine and a half weeks, we get kids farting the theme song to Jaws. Not really, but, and then we get this like flower delivery guy who dances oddly.
1: That was definitely my strange, like the strangest like little side character. Uh,
0: One of the uh, side characters um, tells a anecdote about this guy who paints paintings with his butthole. Like he sticks the paintbrush up his butt and then like paints with it. It has nothing to do with the plot or anything else.
1: Well, I actually thought that that was a critique because she does work for like an art, Gallery. Gallery. So it it seemed like a critique of like modern art. Modern art. Yeah. Kind of, oh, they're just painting with their assholes. It's a very Uh,
0: specific detail. Like it's a lot of airtime, though. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. But I still think Nine and a Half Weeks is just as like morally irresponsible as these other two films as a fantasy because it is the precursor to Fifty Shades of Grey in that it just misunderstands kink dynamics to like a very irresponsible degree as soon as you apply like real world logic to it, just like in 50 shades of gray, we have this woman, Kim Basinger who is introduced to kink. There's a power imbalance where this guy is more experienced than her. He's played by Mickey Rourke. And Mickey Rourke was still like relatively attractive. He was like a handsome young man. Yeah. And he just starts doing things to her without negotiating what they're going to do before they start.
1: When it, it start, and it starts very subtle, to like that's one thing I kind of like is the progression, like the subtle power dynamics and the way yeah. he exploits it, and then it just escalates.
0: I'm gonna put a light blindfold on you and trickle a cube of ice from my cocktail glass down your body, and you're gonna feel that sensation and not know what it is because you're blindfolded. Uh, that's the start, and then later he has her crawling around on all floors and he's like throwing money at her and like fucking her in these like dirty stairwells, and I don't know, it gets gross but there's like a fantasy to this where like negotiation of what you're going to do in bed is not necessary in real life. That is a hundred percent necessary. <laughs> like you should discuss the things you're going to do before you do them.
1: Right. But again, that's projecting the real world. Right. I think in the world of this film, right. They're negotiating, but it's like unsaid. And I think eventually her character arc is she learns like, no, this is my, I won't keep, continuing this i'm breaking this well off
0: she keeps saying no stop through a lot of the scenarios a lot of the scenes they're doing and he continues on he's like oh you like it and yeah. yeah it's he's like challenging her boundaries and that's supposed to be sexy when in real life that is assault it works for the movie i think and what i like about the movie is that it has the most like weird sex that like sink water sex from fatal attraction this movie's just like Teeming with that. that. Yeah. Uh, And it's really fun to watch. And I'm all for more sex in movies. Like, I want all movies to, like, acknowledge that the only two interesting things about life are sex and death. And that is it. We are so boring as a creature besides those two things. Um, (laughs) And I like that the movie does that. But it also sort of romanticizes this, like, poor little rich boy who can't, like, open up about his feelings and, like, hides them away. And basically abuses her. Like, he isolates her from her friends and only wants to do what he wants to do and doesn't really ask her what she's interested in. I think another way it misunderstands kink is that he... This is this is kind of controversial. I don't know if this is something I should say. Say but, it. Okay. I think with kink scenarios, what usually happens, this is not all the time, but usually what happens is there is a play, like a transgressive play with power dynamics. So like someone who has more power... Like him, he's this, like, rich Wall Street asshole who seduces this, like, you know, assistant at an art gallery. She's kind of, like, low on the rung of power. Usually the rich Wall Street guy, the way he would get off is by having her do things to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, he would be the bottom in these scenarios.
1: because well, it's, like, subverting it's su- the power. Yeah, powers. that
0: is where the titillation comes from, is, like, subverting their power dynamic. And that's what a lot of, like, kink scenarios work out as Instead, you have this, like, rich guy, like, sort of extorting and abusing this woman who is turned on by him and just does things that he wants. And he acts like a sadist throughout it because that's what he is.
1: But, it, I mean, isn't there an interesting story to, that's told there, again, with her progression of, like, doing kind of what this man wants, but eventually coming into her own and deciding, like, no, I, I won't let you just control me and... Bring me into these things that I don't want to be a part of, and eventually, that that's why I really got a catharsis at the end when she finally puts her foot down. It's like, no, I'm not. I do think that last thing is interesting.
0: Yeah, and basically, he finally opens up about himself emotionally. Is like, these yeah. are things about my life I was not revealing to you because basically all he wanted to do before that was have weird sex.
1: Yeah, and doesn't she say something to the effect of like, it's too, it's middle, too late? Too late? It's yeah. too late. I wish we could have had this conversation. In the beginning, so it does seem to be ultimately saying like, again, sort of like the indecent proposal, like it's about communication and you should have like been honest and open with me in the beginning yeah, and not waited until I'm leaving to unload all this stuff. So I, I don't know. There is something ultimately, I think kind of empowering at the end. But but I know what you're saying.
0: Largely, it is a very Fifty Shades of Grey yes. situation where it's For like
1: a, the majority of its runtime, it feels yeah.
0: like someone who's very inexperienced with like kink play, like showing it as it is. Right. It's like, well, th- not really. Um, <laughs> I think one of the closest things it gets to it is um, I actually reminds me the movie Secretary. You've ever seen that with like James yeah. Spader? Great film. Yeah. But um, in this situation, he gives her a wristwatch and he's like, at noon every day, I want you to think about me and masturbate and she does it once that we see. Mm-hmm. And that to me felt very like kink oriented, you know, in the future at this like specified time, I want you to do the specified thing. And we're both going to get off on that. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Like they do that and it's actually kind of hot. She's like touching herself and playing with this like slideshow of like art? Modern, art modern art. slides. Yeah. And it's kind of like the movie working at its best the rest of the sex scenes are just so fucking weird. Like there's a scene where she cross dresses as a man and they have sex in this nasty stairwell because people mistake them for like homosexuals and try to jump. Oh,
1: Yeah. No, they, they fight them all and like beat up these homophobes. That was a weird little aside. I like that. That feels like weird
0: erotica. Someone would write like, it's so illogical to like human behavior and like how, the world would seek out, but it feels like someone like writing an erotic story. Like this turns me on for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and I like when stuff like that shines through and like, doesn't get edited out.
1: And the, the food stuff, which I think yeah, there's like a sploshing
0: sequence where he like blindfolds her and just rubs food different all over. Food and
1: it's not as, it's not just like strawberries and whipped cream. It's like jalapenos, jalapeno peppers. <laughs> that was not a erotic scene to me.
0: I can almost do the same thing with that sink water scene in Fail Attraction where it's like they're drunk on lust and that's why they're acting irrationally. Like their sex is not hot in like a traditional way here. They're just drawn to each other and just doing, doing weird whatever shit they to do to each other's bodies.
1: Well, okay. So one thing I was kind of thinking with these movies is we're, we're calling them like erotic thrillers or melodramas. melodramas. But ultimately I feel like Throughout all of his movies, even including you know stuff like Unfaithful and Jacob's Ladder. And it feels more like he is about relationships and relationship dynamics and obviously sexuality, too. But I don't know if I would classify him his movies as like erotic in that way, because like, they're not super sexy to me. This like, is
0: an extremely eroticized film, though. Out of all three of them, one this is one erotic- specifically. Yeah,
1: okay. I'll give you this one, but as a whole like it feels like more relationship oriented and the dynamics between people is kind of what he constantly goes back to for his like source of material I and I also think coming from advertising and doing commercials he has an eye for kind of I don't want to say exploitation but it's like it's titillation I mean yeah titillation and objectification So I think he gets that from the advertising and it does come through in a lot of his films. And I think that's why it can seem like he's maybe misogynistic or leering of the female body. But I I really think his core thing he's always trying to get at is relationship dynamics.
0: Well, I think this one is the most honest film. Like he is very interested in the sex dynamics. When you remove the sex from that situation, what you get from him is this like very gendered, dichotomy we're mm-hmm. like men and men are like this women are like that here's why they can't make that work and i'm not that interested in that because it's really not true
1: and it feels very old school conventional we've
0: come to this point in 2019 where like men as you want to define them personally are on a spectrum here women as you want to define them personally are on a spectrum over here where that individual specimen on whatever their personal spectrum are interact. Like it's so much more nuanced now yeah. where I feel like, but when he was making these in the eighties and nineties, the they were like way more black and white. Yeah. And like I kept saying, these are like fantasy films and they're very like hypothetical films. And once you start like approaching them with like a real world, like scenario in your head, it's like this is so fucked up. This
1: is just not right. I always struggle with trying to apply modern standards to some of these older right. films. Cause It's just not going to connect in the same way. It's a good
0: sign that we've moved on from this. Right. But I think that it's funny that his earliest film in this like series that we've sort of sketched out is his most honest about what he's actually interested in. All the weird asides and like the offbeat sex and like the weird like just human interactions. Nine and a Half Weeks has more of that than the other two films. I don't think it's any more morally correct or more like human in any well,
1: way. I, I and I think also it nine and a half weeks was a flop in the states. It did make a lot of money once it went unrated and it was released in you know Europe and internationally, but it was a flop here. And then you get like he did Footloose or not Footloose? Sorry, Flashdance. Yeah. So he did Flashdance and Feel the and what's Attraction. The biggest
0: image from that is the sexual release of this woman doing a sort of striptease routine and releasing like a bucket of cold water on herself on like a stage.
1: Right. And his, and his like kind of defense of that was like, Oh, she's empowered to, I think it's the same thing as like his defense of indecent. He feels like he's empowering women and he is a feminist director, even if he's probably not by our modern standards. I don't at the know. very
0: least, he opened himself up to collaborating with women. And I think they brought in like an element of like female oriented fantasies that I,
1: but yeah, nine and a half weeks feels like him at his most undiluted.
0: And especially if you consider the unrated cut that has more of a Kim Basinger masturbating for her own pleasure. And it also has a scene of Mickey Rourke going down on her in a stairwell that is cut out. in the R rated version it's only shorter by a few minutes, and they mostly cut down the sex scenes, but a lot of what they cut down for the American release was female sexual pleasure. I watched the version on Netflix, which is the R-rated version. The only way to watch the unrated version legally was for me to buy a DVD of this movie that I only sort of like, so I didn't do that. But I did go <laughs> onto a porn website that had the longer cut on it, and I streamed um, this on like a porn site, which is really where it belongs, and... <laughs> Yeah, I rewatched all the sex scenes specifically, and most of what I noticed was cut out was, like, him between her legs, you know, pleasuring her. And, I don't know, it says just as much about, like, where the American public's mindset was sexually here as it did, like, when they wanted to see Glenn Close shot. Or, like, not see Demi Moore's pleasure with Robert Redford on the yacht. Yes, Adrian Lynn, I think, has a lot of problems with, like, deciding who is the moral center and, like, the... POV character of his right. films but I think it's just as much the fault of people who like made these movies successes like well American he, he is audiences a mainstream
1: director and he's tapping into like modern or modern at the time like what the attitudes of the audience were and I think they were hugely successful because they tapped into exactly what the zeitgeist of the time
0: was why were you know, straight people so scared of Cunnilingus in the '80s. I don't. I don't have an answer for that. I don't but know. it's not his fault. He filmed it. It uh, no. <laughs> just didn't let it get to the big screen. This, I think. I think this was the most exciting film because it had like all of his best impulses in it for longer. But I think, yeah, In Decent Proposal, I could see why you would single that out as like the most melodramatic and the most sincere out of any of the films here. Like in nine and a half weeks. The moral conundrum at the center is safe for the end where he's like, yeah, uh, this is actually what I'm like and what my family's like. And she's like, yeah, it's too late. We didn't do that for the last two hours. (laughs) The movie's over now in fatal attraction. There's that moment where they have to negotiate that the relationship's over and cut off and they both disagree on that. Yeah, Michael Douglas wants to leave, and she wants to hang on. And after that is the fallout of that decision. But that's a very small chunk of the film. And th- is them like saying like what did or did not happen between them, like what it meant emotionally and what it meant sexually. Mm-hmm. It's a very brief blip in the film. And decent proposal actually, like all they do is discuss the the dynamics of like the romance. So yeah, I think that one and nine and a half weeks are at two opposite ends of the Adrian Lynn spectrum. Well, it's like
1: levels of communication. Yeah. And maybe Indecent Proposal, maybe over They're just constantly, like, talking through their relationship, minutiae. Yeah. I I don't know. I I really, I guess the kind of, in conclusion, I think the discussion we just had is exactly why I like Adrian <laughs> Lin. Is, they're interesting to talk about. They're interesting to talk about, and they're, yeah, they're dated in their, I guess, politics. or. But I think he, I don't know, he has, like, an interesting... I don't know. If for like a mainstream director, I like his more weird tendencies and I like the melodrama and I like the what would you do in this situation that kind of all of his movies seems like that's always where the initial idea comes from is these like moral hypotheticals. I don't know. And he just turns out huge hits that seem to capture where the culture is at the moment and yeah, so that's why I think he's kind of important to talk about.
0: They're all too long. That's my main complaint about all of them. And <laughs> like,
1: if you shaved off like thirty minutes from each of them, even be nine and a half weeks
0: is long stretches where no one's fucking, and I'm like, what is? What are we even doing here? <laughs> like, that's we know why we're here. This is basically like porn. Where, where's the porn? <laughs> um, and I kind of want to know, like, what do you think we didn't discuss today? Because I know you watched more than these three films. Jacob's Ladder looked really interesting to me, and maybe we should revisit that. But are there any other like films from him that are like standouts? I mean,
1: Unfaithful would have fit perfectly in this exact same. That's the Diane Lane film. film. Yeah, yeah. With Richard Gere and
0: the Switchblade Sisters episode is really good on that. If you want to like listen to two people discuss it, yeah,
1: yeah. Jacob's Ladder is kind of an outlier. Vietnam
0: War flashback. Yeah, it's like a
1: hallucinogenic flashback. I think you should watch that one. That's him at his absolute strangest and it's none of the sexual stuff. He kind of takes that weird energy and puts it in a different um, sort of film. And I think it works incredibly well. So you should check that out. I was almost um, getting
0: like Ken Russell vibes from definitely. Like, what I was reading about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I think we touched on his major work. Okay. I mean, these three, especially I think really sum up his career and the themes that he likes to touch on and his point of view.
0: I'm gonna be honest, I'm not super sold yet. <laughs> I, I do think the two things I'm like most curious about now are like Jacob's Ladder and Another Nine and a Half Weeks. Like why is there a sequel to nine and a half weeks that also has to Make your Rourke in it? Yeah, I was reading it I'm it's, curious about that.
1: It's supposed to be like really bad. Why does it exist? That's why I don't know. <laughs> like, and it came out like many, many years later. So weird. Too. So yeah, I don't know. I'll have to save that for another day. Well, the next time
0: you come back, we're going to be talking about border. So there's going to be more weird sex discussion weird sex stuff. with like weird moral issues like hanging in the air and trolls. Um, I do think these movies all tested my patience one at a time, but as a whole, like I think it's an interesting topic. All right, good. And I was also like surprised to learn that they're not like well regarded by film nerd people at this time. No. Like Adrian Lyne, even though he has all these hits, like he's not like a well lauded.
1: He's not yeah, <laughs> which kind of makes me like him right even more. Yeah,
0: it's kind of like it's more of an underdog story now. Even though he made millions of dollars off of each of these films, when he maybe made them.
1: maybe we'll come back around. Yeah, but
0: we'll talk about Borden in a couple of weeks. And um, of course, every day on SwampFlix.com, there's a new post. Usually, it's movie reviews. Every Thursday, it's what's playing in New Orleans this week. I will say, the weekly podcast experiment has come to a close. Um, so there will not be an episode until every other week from now on, maybe with some land yap episodes in between, yeah. but it was too much. We tried. It did not work out. <laughs> no one pays us to do this. So <laughs> we we have to work on our desk jobs in the meantime. Unfortunately. And we'll see y'all soon with more weird sex movies. Yay. Bye everybody. Bye. <laughs>
1: This game, don't you? I hate it. Don't you love it? I hate it! You love it. (sighs)